Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Written message here, and I am going to preach it, but I could just take off just from praise and worship uh, from the very first psalm. When, when, when I hear that line, enjoy to the world, when I hear that, I didn't forget. I know the kids got to go to Sunday school. But when I hear that line, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. It, I just picture this powerful entry like Jesus hitting the earth like a bomb and beginning to stake out the kingdom of God from that location. And if, if God with us is with us today... Take a second right now. Is the curse, are any remnants of the curse found in your life right now? Are you suffering because of the remnants, the damage that sin has done? Most of us are. Most of us can look back over this year and think, here's a place I did not walk in complete victory, in the complete manifest blessings of knowing God the Son. And just take a second right now. Close your eyes if you have to. Raise your hand and just say, thank you, God for deliverance, for healing, for provision, for protection. Thank you, God, for victory. Thank you that the kingdom is my kingdom because I am in your kingdom. I am in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the privileges of, uh, that, that you have made available to me, not because of my goodness, but because of your goodness, because of your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for victory. Thank you, Lord, for being God with us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Praise the Lord. Now, teachers and children, off you go to your uh, classes. Hallelujah. It's December. Christmas is right around the corner. And if you know anything about me, you know I love this time of year. And... uh, Speaking of Christmas and this time of year, big thanks to everybody who came in yesterday and helped us with the hanging of the greens. Still have a few things to do, and we will get there, but a lot got done yesterday, and I know. It's a busy time of year. It's tough to come in and give up a few hours on Saturday, but a lot of you did, and thank you. I got my lights up at home before Thanksgiving this year. Had a couple days of warm weather where I was able to get that done. It's a good thing. I, uh, I, I just love it. I, I still like those icicle lights, especially the way they look from about a block away, you know. It kind of lights everything up. And I get out my lights and I plug them in. Yep, that string works. And so I hung everything. And after I got everything hung, I turned it on. And there's like three or four sections where there's about that much of the strand not lit up. <laughs> so I got to go get more lights and go up there and take out one section. And did it all with a smile on my face and a song of praise on my lips, didn't I, Beth? Right. Anyway, lights are up, and all we need now is, uh, you know, four or five inches of snow to make those lights really pop, you know? Anyway, what I'm going to do, you know, uh, maybe you, uh, well, several of you asked me, are we in Timothy today? And no, that's the next thing we will do, but uh, I'm going to take a few weeks off from that while I preach a series Uh, leading up to Christmas, kind of an Advent series, I guess. And I want 
today will really be an introduction to the series, a little bit longish introduction, but I want to set the stage for why we're doing this. Um, and one of the things I want to do is offer a defense for celebrating Christmas in church. Not anybody, nobody has ever suggested to me that we not do that. But it is, believe it or not, and many of you know this, this is a much debated topic. Do we have any business actually celebrating Christmas in church? I'm talking about, this is a, a disagreement among uh, believers, believers of different stripes. And uh, I'll start by this. Every year, every year, somebody asks me what our position, what our church's position is on Halloween. And uh, actually, I say every year. Nobody asked me that this year. But everybody, uh, when I get asked that, what I do is I make available copies of an essay that I wrote about Halloween years ago. And uh, sometimes I'll tweak it and put it out there just for curiosity. Uh, And in that essay, I address Halloween and Christmas. And the short version of the answer of what is Living Word's position on Halloween, we don't have one. We do not promote it. We do not oppose it. It's just, it's a thing, okay? I tease, uh, uh, I was having uh, lunch with uh, Jim Clayton, uh, Rhema guy, Methodist pastor, and they were doing the trunk or treat, which a lot of churches do. And I get, since he's close to me and I can say anything to Jim, I said, so your church celebrates the devil's birthday, huh? That's not what Halloween is, okay? I know about the history of Halloween, uh, and if you're intensely curious what I think, and that's all that essay is, is what Scott Millis thinks. It's not a position paper of living word. I don't feel strongly about it, okay? It is so far removed from its origins, but it's also so far removed from what the church tried to redeem it into. It just has no uh, really resemblance to anything except for the one thing I address in that essay. And I'll just leave that for now because I'm not up here to talk about Halloween. But... Um, It's one thing to say, and this is why, I, honestly, I was totally kidding, Jim. It's one thing to say, we're going we're gonna to have an outreach during this night. And it's another thing to say, we're going to make this holiday a part of our worship as a church. Uh, but we do that with Christmas, don't we? We absolutely incorporate the holiday into our worship, and usually not just for a Sunday but for a season. That's why we, you know, we call it the Advent season. It's something we're building up to something, this anticipation of celebrating the coming of the Messiah. And I want to address a couple of common objections to that, and then I'm doing this, again, to set the stage for the next few weeks. Now, probably the simplest objection that people make is this. Nowhere in Scripture does it talk about celebrating Christmas. There's nothing, there's no, hey, from this day, uh, since Jesus came, you will set a day aside every year. And we, we, there's no shortage of examples of that type of thing in the Bible. The Old Testament, there's, there's a, a lot of days throughout the year, not just days, but weeks that are set aside. You will dwell in tents during this time of the year. You will celebrate the Passover this time of year. You will do this, all of these feast days and fast days that were set aside by God so that Israel would remember certain encounters, certain things in their history, uh, and become, as Ravi Zacharias, I love his phrase, give them the right to be legitimately preoccupied with certain doctrines every every year. There's nothing like that in Scripture about Christmas. Uh, In fact, 
the one thing we are commanded to remember is his death. Uh, That is wrapped up in baptism. That is absolutely wrapped up in communion. It is the cross that Paul said he he preached, the cross of Christ. And uh, this might sound like a lame response, but the first thing I'll say is it doesn't say anywhere in Scripture not to celebrate his birth. We do indeed see a form of celebration of his birth, don't we? The angelic hosts appeared and sang glory to God in the highest, in the presence of the shepherds. Uh, the, uh, The magi brought gifts and honored him. This was a big deal. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about why it's a big deal here shortly. But here's, uh, here's I'm going to read to you out of Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 5. Uh, and this is when uh, Paul is writing to the Roman Christians about, hey, you know, there, there's a lot of criticizing, a lot of judging, because some people do this. Some people really picky about you can't eat food sacrificed to idols. Others are like, why don't you keep the feasts anymore? And they would argue back, well, we're free from that after Jesus. So people are getting offended at people who don't keep the feasts. Other people are getting offended at people who do keep the feasts. You who keep the feast, you're being too religious. You who don't keep the feast, uh, you're being too, you're too libertine. And so what Paul is saying is, it really doesn't matter. And he talks about the food, talks about other things, and then he says this in verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. So this is the important thing. I believe if as Christians we are going to celebrate Christmas... We absolutely need to celebrate Christmas unto the Lord. Now, you've got your traditions in your home, but when we as a church celebrate Christmas, we don't celebrate it with Rudolph and Frosty and Santa. We are celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. That is the Christian celebration of Christmas. It means we are free to celebrate the birth of Christ as long as we don't violate scripture in doing so. You know, there's a difference. This is a super important thing to remember. There are things that take place in our church services, especially in churches like ours, that I would call extra-biblical. Experiences that you have had, experiences that we as a congregation have had, that we can't really point to something in scripture and say, this is that. But they're also not unbiblical or maybe more specifically anti-biblical all right if somebody gets up here and says well today what we're going to do as a church is and then they prescribe some sinful uh something that's clearly uh opposed to scripture and i'm not going to come up with some gross example well then we say and say what this is from god i can't give you chapter and verse i'm just getting it from god we can dismiss that if we can see where it contradicts something in scripture But now you can say, well, I can't really find a place in the Bible where people uh, laughed or fell down or or, or experienced something akin to drunkenness, but it's spiritual. No, but you can't. There's nothing about that that contradicts Scripture either. So we can have, we can't put God in a box, as the old saying goes, and say he can only do, he can only manifest himself in ways that he has already done in Scripture or that he prescribes. But we can say if something, if, if what some person is calling a manifestation of the Spirit is contrary to Scripture, then this is not something we should embrace. All right, so now we have this. And the simple question, may we celebrate the birth of Christ? 
Absolutely, we may. I feel strongly that we should. I think it is such, uh, it's an event of such import that I think we're remiss if we don't celebrate it. But it is certainly not sin. Now, that again, that's probably the simplest objection, but the most common objection, and you probably see this coming a mile away, is that Christmas as a holiday has its roots in pagan festivals. And this much is true, that in one fashion or another, many pagan people did celebrate the winter solstice. Most of you know what that is. That is the shortest day of the year because of the tilt of the earth and our, uh, as the earth revolves around the sun. That means that, that as we get into this time of year, the days get shorter and shorter and shorter because the angle of the sunlight means that less of the earth is illuminated, or less of our, where we live on the earth is illuminated, lower angles, all this stuff, until December 20th, 21st, whatever the winter solstice is, shortest day of the earth, and then what happens? After that, the days start getting longer. And so the, there were many, many pagan societies who... Uh, the, at the center of their worship was, was sun worship. And they had different names for this, but they all revolved around the fact that starting today, the day is getting longer. The sun returns. Okay? And, so there, and there were different expressions of this festival. I'm not an expert on that. Uh, you can look this stuff up. That's not my purpose up here today. But the fact is, they had nothing to do with worship of the one true God. They were worshiping the sun. They were celebrating this. And they were doing this for hundreds of years before Christ, at least. Now, uh, Augustine preached. Well, let me say this. I bring that up because that's where the date comes from. The reason we celebrate Christmas when we do, probably, I can't say certainly, but it is highly probable that the reason we celebrate Christmas when we do is because it was already a huge celebration that time of year. And what Christianity did as, Christian, as, the Western, as Western civilization became Christianized, the church simply said, hey, we are not going to take this celebration away from you. We're simply going to turn it into a celebration of something from the Bible. And some people would consider that compromise. I like to consider it redemption. All right? But now, it's not entirely random either. There were a couple of formulas that suggested, uh, here's why. Here's why we think that is a pretty good uh, option for the date of the birth of Christ. Augustine, uh, this is not a convincing argument, but it's an interesting one. He said that Jesus was born, that the Son of God entered, the, entered uh, physical existence. The incarnation took place on the shortest day of the year because this signified Jesus, the Savior, coming into the deep darkness of mankind and that from the day of his arrival, the light increased. Isn't that kind of cool? Again, you can't make the case. There's no way we know when he was born. And again, strong evidence that what we did was simply co-op a pagan celebration. Jack Hayford answers it like this. You don't know when he was born, right? Right? So you don't know he wasn't born on December 25th. Let's just leave it at that. We don't have a date. Now, the t now for instance, like for Easter, the resurrection, uh, the timing for that celebration is probably pretty right on because we know, you know, according to when the Passover is celebrated and everything else. But here's this huge pagan holiday, 
And again, the church says, we're not going to take it away from you. We're going to turn it into a celebration of Christ's birth. And this was back in the third century, okay, late 200s. Now, there is more to the history of Christmas and how it is celebrated than what I'm sharing here this morning. I'm not here this morning to give you a history lesson on, uh, you know, the origins of St. Nick and all of these other traditions we have or have had. My point is simply this, that the scripture clearly tells us the circumstances of the birth of Jesus Christ. And clearly, this was a historical event of tremendous magnitude. And yes, his death and his resurrection are absolutely the heart and soul of Christianity. But his birth, including several details like uh, his lineage, the location of his birth, the timing. Remember, uh, it was prophesied in Daniel. People who were students of Scripture knew about when he would show up. They didn't know the exact date, but they knew the time was right. The fact that he was born of a virgin, the slaughter of the innocents, all of these things surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ were fulfillments of specific prophecies. His ministry, his miracles, and ultimately his mission were all 30 years in the future. But it all started with the incarnation. God the Son taking on flesh and becoming one of us. And the other reason it's, I believe, proper to celebrate the birth of Christ is because we have to recognize this. It is super important to our understanding of Jesus that he did not just suddenly appear on the, uh, on the scene, fully grown, fleshed out, with his origins completely shrouded in mystery. He didn't just wander into town and people are like, who's this guy? Where did he come? He didn't drop out of the clouds as a 30-year-old as a man. The angelic host, when they appeared and sang in the presence of the shepherds, did that at his birth. Not when he was baptized, not when he was filled with the Spirit, not when he did his first miracle, but when he was born, they sang glory to God in the highest. His birth was something special. All of that, all of that, is simply to say that this is an event that is absolutely worth celebrating. Now, if I can turn dark for just a moment. I remember sharing this with you. Uh, I hope I don't refer to this too often. I, you know, we had a testimony service here recently. Uh, and I briefly mentioned my, the struggles, those two, particularly those two terrible episodes I had with sciatica. And uh, one of the things I noticed during both of those episodes, the, the, the first one lasted a little over a week, the second one lasted several weeks. It was, it was agony, it was dark. I'm not going to tell you the whole story. Other than one of the sort of side effects was I found myself easily moved to tears by something as simple as a, just a blurb of a newspaper article talking about a fatal crash involving somebody I had no idea who they were. Anytime I read about anybody's pain or tragedy, it touched me deeply. 
And one of the things I remember thinking was, I feel terrible, I feel guilty about not taking somebody else's pain seriously. When somebody says, oh, my back is really hurting, I used to say, oh, well, I'm really sorry. And I meant I'm really sorry, but it didn't bother me that much. And then thinking, oh, my goodness, there are other people who have gone through what I'm going through. How could I have had, how could I have not had more compassion than I did? And having gone through that, and not just because of that, I think people are capable of this, and I certainly was capable of it. I just didn't pay much attention. When I read in the paper about a man or a woman killed in an accident, or murdered, or lost in combat, or succumbed to a disease, oftentimes I just shake my head, barely register a reaction. I know you can read about somebody caving into drugs, being lost to gun violence. You think about the tragedy of 9-11 and how this was such a bad, bad day for all of us. It was terrible. But, this is a connection I've made before, every day, including today, is the worst day for somebody. Somebody right now, somewhere in this country and in this world, is having the worst day of their life. Isn't that a happy thought? Why? Because they woke up to the news that a loved one died. You read the statistics. Over the holiday weekend, we had a record low. Only uh, 8,000 people were killed in highway accidents over the holiday travel weekend, whatever. You know, you hear things like this. Or how many died this year? I don't know what the stats are. It used to be something like 50,000 a year. What is it anymore? Anybody know? 50,000 times somebody has to deal with the horror of losing a loved one like that. Not, Not having time to say goodbye, not sitting at their bed, losing them in a fiery crash or something like that. To tragedy. Just, just with autos. Never mind everything else. And I don't like to dwell on it because I'm by, by nature, I'm a, I'm a happy guy. I'm not, I'm not a mope. But every now and then I put myself in the story. And I have to ask myself especially, what if that were my son or my daughter? Because there's something especially tragic about the death of of a child. In the natural order of things, parents should die first. And we read about people. I'm not talking just about little kids. I'm not just talking about babies. I'm talking about any son or any daughter. And a parent has to walk through this tragedy. I can remember reading an intro. I've probably mentioned this book before. It's not a Christian book. It's not a religious book. It's a collection of the letters of Jonathan Netanyahu. You know the last name. Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel. His, younger, or his oldest, her older brother, uh, Jonathan, was uh, a hero and a superstar in the Israel Defense Forces. He was a lieutenant colonel, and he actually was the guy who led the ground attack, the ground forces, on uh, the raid at the Entebbe Airport in Uganda. Uh, they've made several movies about it. Charles Bronson was in one of them, raided Entebbe. It's textbook military operation. Uh, rescued over a hundred hostages in this airport, and they suffered only one casualty uh, of, of the friendly forces. But that casualty was Jonathan Netanyahu. He was struck in the neck by a bullet, was killed in the operation. Other than that, it was a perfect, uh, wonderful... I, I recommend reading a book or watching a movie about it. 
And anyway, uh, after his death, his brothers, Benjamin and Ido, collected his letters and put them and organized them into this book called Self-Portrait of a Hero. I mention it because the introduction to this book was written by Herman Wolk, who recently passed away at the age of 103, I think, one of my all-time favorite authors, Jewish author. And he wrote the introduction to this. And in the introduction, he mentioned how he felt, even though he had never met them, he felt a connection with Jonathan Netanyahu's parents because he had lost a son, Wokat. But he'd lost his son at like age five. He said, so I feel that sense of loss that nobody can really imagine unless they are a parent who's lost a child. He said, but if it's, I don't know if it's appropriate or not to envy them, but I kind of envy the Netanyahu's because their son was at least struck down in the full flush of manhood doing something heroic that meant something to a nation. But even, I couldn't, I couldn't quote exactly what he said, but even at the same time, he's like, that's small consolation. We can't imagine losing a child. It's painful. Because at that moment, you're not thinking, I don't think, I've never been through it. But again, I try to put myself in these stories. What if, what if? You're not thinking, oh well, at least they, at least they got 30 years of good living in. What dies at that moment? Your memories of them as a baby. As a toddler, and I'm sorry if I'm opening up wounds for anybody who's walked through this, okay? I'm just trying to say there is something powerful here, something difficult here to think about. You're thinking of when they're a baby, when they're a toddler, when they're a young child, all of this stuff together, snuffed out. And let me say here that this is one of the things that makes so precious the promise of eternal life. We know it's not snuffed out forever. But it is a loss. It's a huge loss. It's a hard thing. And the reason I bring it up is that God specifically brought Jesus into the world as a baby so that we could be fully in touch with his humanity. This was a real baby. And he had a real childhood and grew up in the real world. Now, he wasn't an ordinary baby. But I guarantee you, that when his friends and his mother witnessed his death on the cross, they weren't thinking, oh, well, at least he accomplished everything he came to do. This was somebody they knew and loved, dying an agonizing death. And sometimes it's too easy for us to say, when we try to look at this from God's perspective, well, God knew all along that he was going to raise Jesus from the dead, so it wasn't really hard for God. But now I want you to think about something. I want you to think about how much you love your children or your spouse or your friends, your parents. I want you to think about the worst thing happening to the one you love the most. I want you to think about what you would do to spare that person any kind of torture, pain, and for sure death. Guys, ever hear that story? It's a great illustration. It's a painful illustration about the the operator of a bridge uh, who had to raise and lower a, 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 a bridge for a, a like a 
I think in the, in the story, it's not a real story, okay, it's just a story, uh, about, but I think it's for a train, a trainload of people or something had to be locked into place, and uh, one day, the, uh, the, the bridge operator, the guy who's most responsible for this bridge is standing there, uh, and his son is in the mechanism of this bridge fixing it. If he doesn't get it fixed, everybody on this train will die. And he's in there working, he's working, and here comes the train closer and closer. And the, the, the man has no option. He can either let everybody in the train die, or he can pull this lever as his son is ground up to death in the gears of this machinery. So he pulls the lever, and his son dies in agony. And as the train races across, safely across the track, the people in the train cars are laughing and jeering at the old man. This is what God's perspective is on the cross. People laughing and jeering and making fun at the father who sacrificed his son on the cross for the very people who are laughing and making fun of him. And you realize, when we picture this kind of agony, how tough it is, how much we love somebody, how much we would give to spare them, and then take a step back and realize, guess what? Our love has been tainted by sin. We're flawed. We're damaged. Our love is incomplete. We're imperfect, and our love is flawed and imperfect. God is love. And as we progress in sanctification and knowledge of God and we become more like Christ, we move closer to that kind of love. But the Godhead has known that kind of perfect love for all of eternity. And God the Father and God the Spirit watched as God the Son died an agonizing death for you and for me, for your sin and my sin. And he didn't just watch it happen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It wasn't like, oh no, look look what's happening to Jesus. He gave his son for that purpose. And this, of course, is what we should be trying to remember when we come to the part of our Christmas celebrations, when we exchange gifts. This all should be looking back to the greatest gift of all. So the theme of this Advent series is this, the gift exchange. The gift exchange. Many of you, uh, you you've got different traditions. I know in our family, it's kind of evolved depending on how old the youngest kids are, who buys gifts for who. There's too many people uh, in our family for everybody to buy gifts for everybody. Uh, So we do it a little bit differently now. On Beth's side of the family, we do something called Dirty Santa. Uh, I think we used to call it a Chinese gift exchange, but you can't call it things like that anymore. Uh, But everybody would just bring a gift. Nobody knew what it was. But you bring a gift, and then you draw numbers, and then number one goes up, and he grabs the gift. She grabs the gift and then opens it. Now, number two can either go get a new gift or steal the gift from number one. Until, and you do this all the way until everybody's done it, uh, and then number one gets to go again. But you can o- the gift can only change hands three times. So if you're the third one to get it, that's your gift. 
and it's fun. But here's the thing. No matter how clear you make the rules, some people treat a gift exchange like that as a gag gift exchange. So you bring something really nice, you know somebody's going to get excited to gift, and you wind up with a roll of toilet paper or something like that. Because somebody thought it was funny, and somebody's got to get stuck with it. And the bottom line is, when we go to a gift exchange like that, somebody's going to come away with something great. Somebody's going home with something that's junk. And when we talk about gift exchange with God, which is what the theme of this is, when I say gift exchanges, gifts we give God, gifts he gives us, who's always going to come out on the better end of that? Who's the better gift giver? We say you can't outgive God, and we talk about that with our offerings, and it's absolutely true. It's true with everything. There is no way in this exchange that it's going to be equal. And you know who's always okay with that? Parents. Remember, how many of you remember the first time you were old enough and mature enough to think about, maybe I should get something for mom and dad this year? So you dig through your change or your piggy bank or whatever, and you get them something really nice, like a tie clip. Uh, or an, I, remember, I remember buying uh, mom, uh, mom or dad a ashtray shaped like a blue glass turtle. I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Got it at the sister shop. Okay, I remember that. A movie where somebody gives, a, gives their mom an ashtray and she says, look at that, that's beautiful. I was thinking about taking up smoking and this just confirms it. Uh, anyway, when you give that cheap, ugly, worthless, whatever it is gift to your parents, do you think your parents ever thought for one second, What? I bought you a verdi bird and a BB gun. And you, this is how you pay me back? That's not the way parents think. If they do, there's something deeply flawed with them. God doesn't either. We're going to look at just a few of the things God gives us and what he actually expects in return. So looking forward, he gives us new life. Nobody else can do that. That's a real gift, you understand? We talk a lot about being saved from hell. He gives us new life. But to get it, do you know what we have to give him? Our old one. Some of us are really cool with the idea of receiving that gift of eternal life. We still want to hang on real tight to the old life, don't we? And we say, I did that 20 years ago. And then one day God wakes you up and says, there's this part of your life. And you're like, oh, I've been hanging on to that all this time. You sure you want it? God's like, yeah, I want it all. The more of your old life I have, the more room there is to pour new life into you. And what do you want to hang on to a dead man anyway for? Somebody should write a song about that. New lives for old. (laughs) Remember that song? It's a cool song. Wayne Watson, right? New lives for old. I'm going to sing it embarrass my kids every time I sing anywhere I hear this sweet voice from my daughter saying stop (laughs) 
He gives us new life. We must give him in in return our old one. He gives us, and this is a two-in-one. This will be one sermon with two things he gives us. One, he gives us his past, and he gives us his future. In this case, what I mean by that is he gives us a clear record of his past dealings with mankind. I'm thinking Psalm 136, where he, he recites the history of his dealings with Israel. And we see his perfect record, his, his, uh, his blessings and his protection and his abundance, everything that he's, he's provided. And he gives us promises for the future. These things are linked because when we see a promise that we could get excited about, we can look back in the record and say, when did God ever fail to keep a pro- promise? Not yet. Not going to happen. He's a faithful God. He keeps his promises. So what do we give him in return? We give him praise. We praise him for the things he has done in our lives, and we praise him just as confidently for the things he has promised to do in our lives. And God receives that praise as a gift. And finally, he gives us revelation. In this case, I mean he gives us a clear demonstration of who he is and what he wants. And what we give him in return is obedience. That might not sound super exciting right now, but it will be the jewel of this series. It'll be the one we do right before Christmas. So do not miss it. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.